So, uh, welcome back to the Utility Strategy Podcast. And today's guest has been tackling the challenge of subsurface utilities for nearly 40 years uh, in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, he's seen what utility risk looks like, and he's done what it takes to mitigate it on some pretty complex projects. Uh, so, uh, Michael... Director of uh, Subsurface Utility Mapping at DGT Associates. How are you doing? Very today? good. Thank you, David, for um, inviting us to uh, speak today on this topic. So it's uh, near and dear to our hearts. So uh, we... it's definitely a pleasure. So, uh, Michael, uh, give us uh, give us a rundown. What have you uh, been up to in the past forty years? Tell us a bit about yourself. Well, I, it was uh, very fortunate for me how my career started. I ended up uh, in civil engineering school in Ireland, and uh, of course, I came from a, a bar and a hotel business in Ireland. So, I definitely wanted to uh, that. I did not foresee myself being a barman for uh, forty or fifty years. Uh, but actually, um, when I graduated in the mid-80s, it was very tough to get an um, engineering survey project in Ireland. There was no jobs out there with 19% of employment. So I actually get, was very fortunate. I got a job with a contractor doing utility work, and it was a very good introduction for me for my career to understand the utilities from the trench point of view, from being a contractor uh, and assembling all those pieces. So it gave me a good background. So over the years, I... Uh, Immigrated to the U.S., I ended up working in engineering survey firms. Uh, some of the big projects that you hear about and, and still read about are something like the Big Dig in Boston. Uh, that was I began that project in 1987, so it was one of the largest projects. But uh, it became known for one of the biggest squandered projects because it was a $6 billion job that became a $22 billion job, a six-year project that lasted 20 years. So uh, there's a lot of lessons those mega projects that translate even into small projects, uh, but unfortunately, we're still fighting the same challenges today as we were back then, uh, which means we've got plenty of work for the future. So, but uh, over the years, I've I've got to travel. I've done projects in India. I've done projects in Australia. So I've got a good background, and it's great to see a different perspective from different cultures. It's incredible. Uh, t tell me, uh, tell me a bit. Uh, what are the kind of common challenges that you are seeing, like both uh, in the U.S. and uh, across the globe? Are you seeing that we're facing the same stuff, or is it uh, different uh, challenges, different cultures? I, I think we all face the same thing over the years. If you look back into the '70s and '80s, there was some very good uh, asset owners that maintained survey crews that updated their own asset records. Uh, but over the years, you know, uh, bean counters became cartographers, uh, which means that they decided they didn't need survey folks. They didn't need to update their underground asset plans. So over the last 40 years, you basically see a, a degradation of the quality of underground utility information. And that's not just in the U.S. I think if you look at the records in the U.K. and Ireland and even Australia, uh, some of those asset owner records were terrible. Um, so today we fight when we go to locating and mapping on projects. Uh, the last 30 or 40 years, there's no really good records uh, to be found for underground assets. So we're always playing catch up about what's happened in the interim. So we find wonderful archives from, you know, 100 years ago. But new facilities that were put in without the benefit of an asbuilt become very challenging. And some of those are plastic facilities. They're even harder to find. Uh, so that's one of the, the big challenges that we see that's common to many countries. I do think that, you know, the ASE and, and uh, a lot of the work that was done through the late 80s and early 90s was great in the U.S. Uh, we started to see, like, especially ASE 3802, 
you know, there was a guideline, there was a standard of care that we saw that was very good for our industry. And that has been mimicked around the world. Other cultures, and uh, you know, Australia has AS5488. Uh, the UK has, you know, PAS128. Uh, so all of those different guidelines and standards were adopted in other countries. Uh, but I think they did better to adopt it and implement it in a broad scale. And I think we've fallen behind in the U.S. and that we don't have broad adoption right across all the uh, things, with the exception of Colorado and Montana that made ASE 3802 law. Uh, and so the, the, the practices that we see in those guidelines are now law there. And there has been a law in Pennsylvania for many other states. But unfortunately, all the other states, it's unless the asset owner and the designer really wants to do underground mapping in the preliminary stages of project, we find that a lot of these other states, they fall behind and there's no adoption. Why do, why do you think that is? Why, why do you think that's Well, I, I think many people are um, optimistic that, you know, big design firms will do the right thing. And that's not what I see. Um, so uh, what I see is many of the firms I've worked with, even in the Boston area, we've spoken about it before, that we know there's firms that we've worked with for 30 or 40 years. They know about underground mapping. They know about the ASE standards. But every single time they produce drawings, unless the owner is really mandating it, they don't adopt the standards. They still depict underground utilities. Uh, and most of them have tons of errors and emissions. We're not really seeing quality underground mapping. Uh, what we see is a, a hodgepodge of throwing things together. You put it in, you digitize it. It's, it's uh, technicians at a low level with no supervision. So it doesn't make any sense. Unfortunately, when that information goes into construction, it's a free-for-all, and that's why you still see contractor claims, changes, and, and that. And, and we're very critical, because I've worked in every side of uh, the parties involved in the AEC industry. So as a contractor, you, you made hay when you could find all of these errors and omissions. You got delays, change orders going to contractors because they're so poor quality and in information. Uh, but we don't know why many of the firms that do know about subsurface mapping don't do the right thing at the beginning. Uh, because it only makes sense. There's a positive ROI. There's a lot of great institutions. That so we know the ROI exists. We know that uh, every dollar spent, you're going to get it back in, in mitigating construction claims and change orders. Uh, but unfortunately, you don't see that today. And uh, it's very disappointing, but it means that we get to continue working. But it's an uphill battle to get everybody on the same page. What are the, what, what are the reasons you think the... GCs aren't able to close out properly and kind of hand in those uh, those as-builts that are really as-builts. Yeah, well, we think there's no real incentive. At the end of a project, uh, a contractor just wants to move on to the next project. So all of these things are very much a chore. Uh, there's often not a very big financial benefit to the contractor. Uh, and even when we work in different organizations like higher education where they're getting BIM models, we hear the same thing from them, even on the inside plan, not just outside plan. When people are finishing off projects, there's the need to jump onto the next profitable project, and that old project is done, we're built, and we're done with it. So we've no incentive to do that. So unfortunately, we're always left with ambiguity in the handover. We rarely see a bona fide as-built by a, a surveyor from a construction site that leaves us a trail of what really was put in the ground. And what's more important for us these days, what's left in the ground. So in the U.S., we have a big um, history of abandoning utilities in place. Uh, and often they're easier to trace than a new utility. So, for example, a 100-year-old gas line that's a metal pipe can trace with a pipe locator a lot easier 
than a brand new gas pipe that's a HDPE pipe that's put in with no trace wire. So many times we have this mistake that's carried over in locating uh, and presented on drawings because of these types of things left in the ground. Had they do a, if they do a good asbuck after construction, uh, maybe we would see better results and we'd actually be easier to do our drawings for subsurface utility mapping, but that's not what we see. What do you think that uh, project stakeholders can do these days to kind of get their hands or, or at least just start investing in utility information at kind of the early stages of the project? Because it seems that when we talk to uh, a lot of engineers and contractors, like just getting, just even thinking, okay, now I need to start dealing with the risk of utilities. It always gets kind of pushed down the line towards, I'd say, closer to construction because that's when it makes sense financially to start investing. But it's kind of, it's it's too late. Sometimes. Absolutely. So we, we still see so many contracts. Um, even last year, we made a, a, a joke about it in 2022 in our closeout. We have several major projects come through. We know the designers have worked for two or three years preparing the existing site condition plans. They do above ground surveys, which are done pretty well, but the below ground information is never depicted properly. And this gets carried over from two years of an opportunity from design firms with the owner to get this. And then they send it to construction, which usually means between two weeks to four weeks, a contractor will get the a low bid contractor will get an NTP to begin construction. So the first thing we see in all of these plans and records and the project specifications is they say the contractor is responsible for finding all utilities. Well, we often joke about it. The only one that can find all utilities is Jesus, and he doesn't work with us, right? He just did not you know, decide this was a profession for him. So when you ask a contractor that's a low-bid contractor to do this work, do you really get the best uh, service for locating all utilities? And then many times when they do find utilities, they're actually rushing to get construction going. So there's the opportunity for those mistakes to happen. So when people say they do a risk assessment on the project, I don't think that's really true. I think there's a lot of BS. If you haven't done a good utility mapping in the design phase, you really can't do a real proper bona fide risk assessment going into construction because you just don't know what the underground site conditions are. And, you know, unfortunately, unless you do what Colorado and, and Montana have done, make it law, you're not going to see those changes. You know, I think that... Uh... What we've heard, like when we talk to project owners, is they sometimes feel that it's in the interest of the general contractor to have this uh, uh, ambiguity around what's buried in the subsurface because that's more change yes. orders, right? That's more, and it's uh, like to think of it like there are so many risk factors here. Like there's a safety factor, there's a budget factor, there's a schedule factor, and uh, it's like all the stakeholders in the project don't always share the same interest around mitigating the risk of, subsur of subsurface utility. Yes, and, and so for us, I mean, we think, you know, the real way of doing this properly is to, you know, mapping in the design, preliminary design phase of the project to really understand the underground utilities. That gives you the opportunity in a timely manner to work with all the underground asset owners to understand what actually is buried in the ground, what's live, what's abandoned in place. Um, you know, it gives them the time to plan if there's relocations needed. You have a few months or a year maybe to relocate utilities out of the way. 
if you rely solely on, on putting bad construction design documents into a contractor's hands, the time between the NTP and relocating utilities, that's not enough. And many asset owners do not have the resources to relocate something like major fiber lines or gas lines out of the way of a project, which means you know project delays instantly happen. So we, we know there's a good way to do this. We know there's a poor way, but unfortunately, people are continuing to do uh, the very poor way of doing that. What exasperates us is that in Boston, we have a history in back dating back into the late 1890s. And there was a party. And it was actually to design the very first subway system built in the U.S. The designers went to Europe. They went to Paris, Budapest. They went to uh a few cities around Europe to see what was going on in construction and to bring back some best practices. So what they implemented was a plan that they said, we're going to survey and, and uh, locate above and below ground. They excavated utilities with steam-powered machines called inclines. Uh, obviously, they had no remote sensing technology, but they had very good survey practices. So they made thousands of drawings for the new project that was a very um, hastily built project. And they actually built a new subway system that was electrified, which was its first of its kind. And the amazing thing about building a brand new project, a mega project like that, is they came in on time and under budget. Now, today, you're over 100 something years later, you look at it and say, how can designers muck this up from the hundreds to do this right? How can you still screw this up with all the softwares and the planning? They can talk about all the software programs and cloud-based solutions. It all amounts to a pile of muck if you cannot bring a project in on time and under budget. And traditionally, that has always been underground utilities. So the big, big project, that fell amok because of uh, not having utilities plotted accurately. Uh, the 405 project in um, the highway in L.A., that had a $300 million settlement. It was originally a $500 million claim because the contractor found 1,600 uh, mistakes on the drawings when they started construction. And so Wow. When I worked in Sydney, Australia, the light rail project, even though they invested some money in, in utility uh, investigations, they actually, the $2 billion project became a $3 billion project. So we're seeing the same things happen all the time. So, but again, you know, it's, uh, it's frustrating to see this, the same mistake keeps on happening. So we know there's a solution. People just don't want to address it. No, but I think that like compared to a century ago that where there maybe were utilities in the ground, there weren't as many utilities of, as there are today. And I think that, you know, every year that goes by, yes. we're going to have more and more pipelines and, and just basic lines in the ground. And it's going to become, uh, what is a term that we, we often hear used, the spaghetti bowl of utilities. And it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. If you take a look at my LinkedIn uh, post, we actually pull a lot of the digital photographs from the 1800s and actually you'd be amazed to see how many utilities were buried in the old cities and towns. And so we know that there was utilities in the early, early 1800s, water, sewer and drain types of systems. But very quickly, by the mid 1800s, you had an explosion of gas lines all over. Like Baltimore was one of the first in the U.S., but uh, Boston Gas was uh, originally founded in like 1832. So by the middle of the 1800s, you already had a huge amount of uh, utilities in the ground, and it even got more complex as you went to the, air, the end of the 1800s. So you had the telecom and the electrics, and these were often smaller tubes that went in a spaghetti factory. If you look at the um, 
the old archives for New England, you'll see that there were very complex underground environments. And I'm sure it was the same in European cities. Uh, but you had very complex environments, but you didn't have the problems. And what, one of the things that we saw in, in through the 1900s is the early 1900s has some fantastic utility records. And they were actually all done by survey uh, folks. So each of the asset owners had a survey crew that maintained capturing as they built new systems, as they abandoned systems. They upgraded their asset uh, records. And then that carried forward to some of them, even like the, the Edison companies in America, not only surveyed their own systems in detail, but they surveyed everybody else's systems. So they actually had two sets of records, one for their own assets and one for everybody else. And the reason they did that was to help with underground damage prevention. So many of the things we're seeking to solve today, these are things we already solved in the past. We just forgot about how to do it with all the digital technology. Yeah, I think that it's uh, in some aspects made our lives easier, but it also uh, makes us uh, forget about how to do the the actual work, right? Uh, like at the end of the day, you need someone that's uh, boots on the ground, that's there in the field, and that's touching metal, right? Absolutely, absolutely, and and I think there's there's still a lot of client education for other industries, you know, maybe architects and. Uh, some of the engineers that don't understand that these asset owners didn't have good records. So hiring a geospatial firm, whether you're a land surveyor or a utility surveyor, to create a map for existing conditions for a new project, you don't have a lot of good information to go by. So unless you've got the best remote sensing technologies, it's not always possible to find all utilities as the contract documents were often specified. So, you know, again, there's a, a gap in information, but there's also a gap in the knowledge that we're facing challenges. Um, a good example is, so one of our major projects is around MIT and Harvard University in the Metro Boston area. And in the last year, we were getting our last set of documents to finish up all of our underground mapping. And we, uh, we do a documented request for information from all the underground asset owners that's known to work in the area and have uh, facilities. And one of those was a major telecom company uh, one of the biggest in America, if you're watching TV here, you're going to see them every night advertising their telecom and their services. But the time their records was 1998, the last known revision on their drawing. So we're not quite sure, but we think there's been a few new telecoms built since 1998 in a place that's right at the back of MIT in, in the Boston area. So, you know, if they really think they want to protect underground assets, you'd actually give us the latest information of all the new systems that you've buried. Of course, we use radar tomography to find those trenches, uh, but it's a daunting task to find all of those things. But, you know, I think, uh, look, it's, it's no secret that uh, in our line of work, uh, the telecom utility owners are not easy to, to work with, right? And, and we, can, we can name names, right? But... Um, and that, that, by the way, like the feedback that we've heard the, from, from talking to them is that uh, they're very much concerned about competition and uh, the other networks finding out where they're putting down fiber and where they're expanding to and basically kind of uh, uh, don't want that business intelligence to get to them. But on the other hand, it doesn't make any sense when you have an excavator out into the field and he thinks that he's, he's clear to, to dig. Uh, and then he kind of pulls up uh, several fiber lines, right? Well, it, it's kind of funny, David, because they say they're very, um, you know, concerned about the secrecy. 
but yet in the U.S. we have 811, and it's required by every every asset owner, uh, and there's almost no exemption for any telecom companies, right, to go out yeah. on the ground. So they say they don't want to give you the information, but yet at the end of the day, right before construction, they're required by state and federal law to go out and paint on the ground what they have in the ground. So to say that they're you know protecting their intellectual property is a load of BS when they already go and painting it on the ground two weeks before construction. So all, all the competitor has to do is look at the paint on the ground and say, well, I know what you have in the ground. So one <laughs> and paint on the ground is it's going to be there. It's going to be there for a long time. Um, you know, I think it's going to be replaced in the near future by a robot. That's one of my career missions was to build a robot that painted out the underground assets as opposed to me having to do this. Uh, yeah. But at the end of the day, I kind of think it's hypocrisy because, you know, 40,000 years ago, Aborigines communicated by painting walls and, and messages on the ground uh, for telling the story about what's going on. And 40,000 years later, our entire underground damage prevention is based on, let's paint on the ground and I'll send you. Thanks. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, it's... Uh... I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, like talking a bit about the, the digital gap that we have in our industry, uh, we talk about this a lot, that uh, there are some industries like you can look at farming and manufacturing that have had an immense leap in digitization in the last decade and have kind of gone from a very traditional industry where everything is kind of nuts, bolts and oil. Uh, to uh, an era where everything is sensors and uh, and uh, computers and data and all those buzzwords, cloud and big uh, uh, and AI and so on and so on. And, you know, I think that we as an industry, we're not, I'm, I'm not seeing that we're there yet. We're not there yet. And I think that there's kind of a... Uh, uh, I think there's room for that. Like, it's like you said before, there's... Uh, we still need to know what to do with these technologies. And I think that's where the gap is because you have these amazing technologies, but then you have, there's still a gap of education of people knowing how to use them to do the right things. Does that make sense? I went on a bit of a rant. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think our, you know, the AEC industry where, you know, BIM modeling and some of the above ground uh, applications have really progressed and are much more mature. But when it comes to the underground and the outside plant, I think we're sadly lacking uh, in the digital transformation into where we should be. You know, for example, you know, the Edison records from 50 to 60 years ago, uh, the ones that we have in our in-house library are fantastic. When we go to solicit the underground information from other asset owners, we get garbage. It's absolutely, when you digitize that and you X-ref it in and CAD or into the a GIS application, you look at it and it doesn't even look the same. It has no, it carries no information. So it says it's a, a GIS or geographic information system. But the irony is it often has very little information that's usable for me as a practitioner to depict existing conditions on the job site. So what is that digital transformation? What is that lack in knowledge? And, and to us, it's to that every project should go out there, locate and map the underground. And then you have a library um, so, for example, I work at an airport very close to the Boston area, and after 30-plus years, I've yet to see the as-built from a construction project I've worked on to be regurgitated in the new construction documents. Now, that's amazing, because for 30 years, we've had you know, CAD 
you know, documents where we do a project in AEC, we turn it back into the designer through the contractor. They give it back to the owner and they never actually take the opportunity to build that in. So there's a lot of gaps in this to make it all the way from what we're doing today to what we should be doing if we really want to address safer projects, more efficient projects, and projects that are delivered on time, like we did in the 1800s, right? <laughs> you know that uh, I, I love that point, and uh, you know what really kills me is that you can have uh, uh, just a, just as an example, right, a DOT project that uh, same same uh, same road with two different projects on that on that road, and both projects will send out teams to map out that exact same area. And then the year after, there's going to be like a, a road expansion for the exact same area. And they're still going to send out a team to do the exact same yes, work. Absolutely. Boggles my mind. <laughs> the, the one thing I will say from the demographic of a contractor that I worked with back in 1985 to what we see today is contractors have got so sophisticated in their in-house thing. So they realize when they do projects that they should as build utilities for themselves. Generally, contractors work in a smaller geographic footprint. They may be very large contractors, but they work in a geographic area that's very... Yeah, we're seeing that yeah. too, yeah. see that contractors are being much more uh, shrewd about collecting that information and maintaining that so that when next project, that data so it makes them more competitive, they, they have a higher intellect of what's going on, they know how to protect utilities better. So we see that as a big change. And many of these big contractors, they don't even hire firms like us anymore because their in-house skills are so good. They're buying locators, they're buying radar systems. You know, they have BIM modeling in-house. Uh, so we see that there's some great changes happening for contractors. We think the big lag is the design firms that say, you know, we're going to kick this can down the road and we're just going to keep on doing what we've always been doing. How, how, do, we, how do we convince them? How do we, what do we need to do to get them on board with the, with the program and make sure that they uh, are aware of what it means, that, of the, what are the consequences of them kicking that can, can down? Change the, the state law. That's the only thing that changes. You can write best practice. You can say everything about guidelines you want. And all you are is Monty Python. You're John Cleese, you know, Life O'Brien, you know, anything you want. They'll just chatter unless you make it a law that these people have to do the right thing. And unless you do that, it's not going to change. But you know what the, the devil advocates are going to say, that even the law the law in uh, Colorado, uh, how, how do they enforce it? It's a law. It's a great law. But how do you enforce it? Well, you know, you can tackle that second. You know, for example, here in Florida, I live in Florida, even though I work and commute to Boston. Uh, but one of the things here is if you're working out on the roadway here uh, in Florida and you uh, just happen to be out there with a vacuum truck like I was years ago, if I'm out there locating, the sheriff's department literally pulls up, gets out of the car, walks over, right? And it's usually a burly looking chap with a huge ass gun. And he will literally say, what's your dick safe ticket? He wants to know you've done the right thing. So I can figure out enforcement later on. But I think these firms will do the right thing if it is a state law, but if it's not the state law, they're just going to keep on running them up. Yeah, I agree. We're, the, the industry is pretty law-abiding, right? We're pretty good. We're, we're good boys. Yeah. So. Most firms don't want, because at the end of the day, it's just a, it's like insurance actuators. They're literally going to look at this and say, hey, if it was state law, we broke the law, 
we've actually, you know, got nothing left behind us to find ourselves. Like I always say, ignorance is not a defensible position in court. So if you were as a, uh, a principal in an engineering firm and you said, I knew it was state law, you know, I didn't have internet at the office. We've never done an internet search. We didn't know the law had changed, right? So, but it's not going to work out, right? So we don't go that way. I think if you do change state law, they are going to change their practices. If you don't do it, you can see exactly what we've seen in the Boston area. 40 years later, they're still doing the wrong thing. And uh, not on small projects. We're talking large projects where there's a stake uh, for taxpayers, for uh, residents in the area. There's disruption to neighborhoods when projects are delayed, but they still don't care. They'll keep doing the wrong thing. You know, but I think that... uh... There's also a say for project owners here that don't necessarily need to wait for legislation. Just for example, so the uh, TxDOT, Texas Department of Transportation, uh, if you're, you sue is mandatory, yep. you have to have that uh, as part of your project. And I think that it's up to other project owners, other DOTs, other municipalities to kind of say, look, if you want to work with us, you need to mi- mitigate the utility risk of your project so we have clarity around schedule, capital, and yep. safety. Absolutely. And, you know, you do see that the best adopters and, you know, the reason the subsurface mapping has been so successful in the U.S. was because of the federal highway. So it's just about all states uh, have adopted the SUE and the ASE 3802 as their guideline for their best practices. Uh, but many of the designers that did work in transportation, they may have another discipline that works in industrial or higher education or medical fields, and they actually don't do it. Um, but most of the time, when you look at federal highway projects or at, at least the state DOTs in the U.S., they are looking at the ASC standards and having utilities mapped early on. What I think they've been lacking over the years is having a good depository of information. Like you said, when they go back to doing a project, um, you know, for example, I had a contract in Caltrans in California. And um, they always joked about having 100 years of excellence. And all I saw was 100 years of ignorance. (laughs) I tend to dig holes where there was already a hole dug in the past. And I'm like, do I really need to dig this telecom? Because they've got a witness stake here that says it's about two feet down. There's there's a lot of uh, work that needs to be done for building depositories of information and being able to regurgitate that information as necessary. And then to be able to reuse it in the future. So obviously, if we did a project 10 years ago, we don't want to be liable in the future. If somebody said, hey, I'm taking your plan. I'm going to start design with this right now because there has been changes over time. So we see there is some work to be done there. But, you know, state law is the only way to make the biggest change that we need to see happen everywhere. And then we think we'll figure out enforcement will be figured out, the depository of information and resharing information. We'll figure that as we go. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, I was talking to a a GC and uh, she, the engineer, was uh, was telling me that they hand in these uh, these as built at the end of the project. They hand them into the project owner, and they have they will never see that document again. And where do those records go? Like, why aren't, aren't we reusing them? You know, like even even if they're inaccurate. Right. And there's there's a there's an argument for that, too. But even just knowing what's out there and what the designers and the the contractors of that project had in mind, like even if it's 80 percent, 
80 percent there's value in that and i think that uh, you know that's that's something that uh, a challenge that uh, we've been thinking about a lot is how do we get uh, the the project owners and all that data uh, digitized and make sure that everyone that needs to have access to it has access to it. Well, and and it's true. You know, even if it's like you said, records, even if they're not very uh, you know complete, you know, for us it's still having a great start on the project if we have some good reliable information to begin with. You know, right now we're drinking from a fire hose. When you get all of this information, you don't know if real or not real, right? And it's literally drinking from a fire hose. So how do you digest it? How do you do enough of research to say, what am I really dealing with here? And how do I build a project approach for my team to go out there and do locating and GPR? And what trusting? Which record are you Yes, trusting? exactly. So, um, so we can filter it out if we have a good base map to begin with. And that's one of the benefits for our, I mean, we're very centric to New England and the Boston area particularly. So we always have some very good, reliable information. And often what we get from the project owner is not really reliable. And so what we see is that has, that's a huge help and it it diminishes the cost on the project. If you keep on building this library, it doesn't cost much to store this data. It doesn't cost much days to index it and have it searchable and queryable, but definitely you know, everybody needs to have some plan in place to, for future generations. Otherwise, you're going to keep on spending lots of money in contract delays and change orders. And and so it doesn't make sense. It's financially uh, ridiculous to see what people are still doing, even though they know the end is going to be uh, a terrible outcome. You know, I think that uh, we, we talk with a lot of DOTs, and I think that TechStot is the most progressive that we've been uh, we've been talking with. Um, but even even them, I have yet to see a plan of how to take all this information and turn it into something useful. And it, it goes back to what you uh, you mentioned before that even when you get uh, get your hands on these digital as builds, you can't use them. And we know why that is. It's because we're giving these uh, uh, graduates, right? These uh, first time civil engineers to kind of take these as built and turn them into something digital because, well, that's what you do with the young professionals and that's what they're uh, there for at that stage in their yep. career, right? And there's going to be plenty of mistakes there. And there needs to be a better way to do this. There needs to be a professional SOPs for how this should be done. Does that, I hope well, that I, I think the UK are, are much further ahead than the U.S. these days, having a standard, having training programs, having certification programs to get people moving along in the right direction and making sure there's some formal education. Uh, And we don't have that in the U.S. In the U.S., you know, we've seen a huge amount of uh, surveyors leaving the the, uh, industry. So we uh, it's like 3000 surveyors retire every year. And there's only about 300 coming into our industry out of those. There's very few of them that are proficient at underground utility mapping. So we see that there's a huge lack of institutional knowledge. And and for us, you know, especially the principals at DGT and all the senior management, we had a very, very good time when we came into the industry. We went to, you know, college to get our education. But we learned our craft at work under mentor and training programs from seasoned professionals. And that was the, the first 10 years of your career in the workplace with senior people that have that historical knowledge to teach you what to do and what not to do. 
uh, was fantastic. And I think we have an obligation today. That's why we're so active in our website. That's why our, uh, we're always on LinkedIn every single day trying to get the message out, is that we really need to educate these young folks where they're going to get that training to become the next utility locators and what the things are, are to do. Um, you know, for us, one of the things I think that the big promising things we do see is that I think when some of the culture from some of these older professionals leave the marketplace, we actually could get a lot of change. I think, you know, you're going to see a lot of uh, technology adopters and young seasoned professionals. And we're seeing that with our customers today where we, we have several customers and I always joke to them that they're way smarter than I am. And so we see once you explain what the benefits and what we do, they have adopted wholeheartedly. They take it on. They said, this is what we're going to do. Every document we're going to get is going to be based. It's going to be based on ASBUILD. It's going to be building a depository, whether it's from our construction, from our asset guys, from our uh, operation and maintenance guys. We're going to keep on building and putting the pieces of this puzzle back together. And it's not going to be proprietary software. It may be on a cloud solution, but it's not proprietary. And you can build a block and turn back time and have all this done with seasoned professionals that have been coaching the younger staff. And then they can bring in the new technology that will change things. So. That's a that's an amazing number. What you just said that we have three three thousand surveyors leaving the industry and three hundred coming. Yes, in. And, and there's many of the institutions have dropped the uh, training for survey. Um, you know, so a lot of civil engineering graduates that we get today. I mean, we came through civil engineering. One of the basic practices we learned was you know survey practices, and uh, we actually had an incident where we had interviewed a graduate from a four-year civil engineering school, and we asked him about a level. Do you know how to use a level? So before we had a very complex questions. Now we've dumbed it down to saying, do you know how to use a level? And the the um, candidate said, I don't know what a level is. So I go, did you ever walk into a house and had to slope all the way down to the the other side of the house? I mean. How do you think we live in a world where everything is flat and level in our houses and buildings and structures? You you got to understand how you got level, right? I mean, if they didn't get the pyramids right, they would have been fell over if they didn't understand what a level was, right? So to this day, we're we're still seeing that lack of uh, training that you need to do to do our work properly. So we. This kind of, I think this comes up in the, I, I've never heard this number specifically around surveyors, but just kind of general conversation around the entire construction industry that, uh, that there's a workforce crisis. And uh, when we talk about it with uh, our friends around subsurface utilities, so it's like there's a huge challenge of how do we get more and more people into the industry? And... Like we've heard of uh, firms going to high schools and getting uh, getting uh, uh, the guys and girls into trades uh, and kind of trying to pull them uh, pull them in from there uh, and going to the civil engineering schools and uh, and talking about the work uh, and uh, and and I, I keep wondering like what what else do we can we do? Well, actually, I I think for subsurface mapping, uh, we have actually a better advantage than traditional land surveyors. You know, a lot of young folks, if you tell them, you know what L.L. Bean is? No. It's no. clothing that's like all plaid, you know, traditional old tweed hat. You know, yeah, yeah. You know okay. yeah. surveyor that this is your career, you know, whether it's a male or a female candidate says you're going to be out there in the hot sun. You're going to be out there in the snow and the cold and the wind and the danger of the roadway. 
dressed in L.L. Bean clothes, not very attractive, right? Where yeah. look at our profession with radar tomography and pipe locators, you've got a global opportunity in a career. You could work in Europe, you could work in the Middle East, you could work in Asia uh, with the same principles and learnings from the, what we have. Uh, I've never heard anyone talking about it yeah. like this. Anyone. First so, time. But we believe that we can attract more people. So we actually attract more people through our utility mapping group than we do from our traditional survey outreach programs. And the reason being is it's a lot more attractive. There's a lot more technology. It's challenging for young folks. They see all the different opportunities, whether you want to be in the office, in the field. And, and the other part of it is it's succession planning. You know, you hire a young you know, we always ask them, what do you want to do, you know, two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? What do you see yourself doing? And many times they haven't thought about what they really want to do in the long term. But you really have to to really get the right candidates. And so we think by all this technology is going to attract the type of candidates we want to work with. And we're very fortunate. We feel blessed that we have some fantastic talent in house. So, you know, we may have a small group, but we're firing in all cylinders and they're all very talented. So our work is exemplary because of the training and the knowledge that we give to these young staff that we have. So we're delighted to see our industry doesn't face the same challenge that other people have. But I think that also uh, the fact that your firm can offer uh, these kinds of opportunities can be taken for granted. Like that this isn't something that every firm can offer. I think that's pretty special. Well, I, I think it's only because you don't try. Like one of the things when a number of years ago when I returned from abroad and went to work with DGT, uh, our, our website was outdated. Uh, and one of the things is that if, if you go to a, you know, recruiting in a, you know, university campus, you're talking to civil grads or GIS type folks, and you say, hey, we'd like you to come work here. The first thing they're going to do is turn around, jump on their phone, look you up. And if you like the place yeah. has the smell of formaldehyde and this is a dying industry and a dying bunch of folks here, they're not coming to work. They're not coming to the interview and they certainly yeah. want to spend their career with you. So trying yeah. to make your website and everything that's attractive, that you have opportunities for growth, you could be engineering, you could be survey, you could move between divisions. Um, and for example, these days we have a project in Malibu, California. So for you know a staff members in Boston in the snow and the cold, to go to a nice sunny climate, we pick projects that have the opportunity to say, you know, you're not going to be in South Boston in a windy street and snow and mud, uh, you know, or a construction site. You'll actually have an opportunity to be on out in Malibu overlooking the ocean. So I think there's a lot of things you can bring to make it attractive to young folks to get the people you want in there. Um, but we're very good at focusing in and having good clients. One of my things, if I had to say anything over 40 years, it's about the relationships you build with your customers. And I often say, I don't work at grandma's house because I don't want to work in a small project. I don't want to work on a, a project that doesn't have a ramifications or benefits for the team. Uh, and so we only work with good customers. Uh, and we're very fortunate. We're financially uh, you know, sustainable that if we can turn down big dollar projects because if you're a pain in the ass customer and you don't believe in what we do for a living being important, we don't want right? And the other part of our business that many people forget about is they say, they'll call up and say, hey, I need you here tomorrow. If you're piss poor at planning your project and you need me tomorrow, the only thing I can give you is a hysterical laugh and a gloat at it, the fact that you're so bad at what you do. So nothing in our industry happens tomorrow. You know, success is planned. And we actually work through a whole program that we've developed for years. 
to have planning, organizing, develop a scope, have the right team in place, the right equipment, working with the best people for the best customers. And we don't have problems on our projects. So I think there's there's a lot of components to put it together. The only thing that we haven't changed that we'd love to change is that state law that says people have to do the right thing. How, how often did that, does that happen when uh, someone calls you up and said, I need you tomorrow? Uh, quite often, actually. I would say it's, it's just about every week. And why do they call when they need you tomorrow? Uh, because they're ignorant. Uh, they don't understand. You can't even get a plumber tomorrow. You know, we've seen this thing over the toilet. <laughs> you have a program that say, I need you tomorrow. But if you're in the AEC industry and you need me tomorrow, if you're that bad at planning, you're usually that bad at payments and getting paid. And we don't do this, you know, to get exercise. We do this as a financial business that's profitable. And the that do yeah. that are not very profitable. So it's always crisis management. So we always say... You know, you can leave your emergency. We, we'll find somebody. So uh, we do get the calls. We never respond. I drive a fire truck and I don't. Act. Yeah. So it's always uh, when that utility strike happens and then they find that spaghetti ball of utilities and then they say, OK, we, we didn't deal with this uh, during the design phase. Now we're going to deal with it in the middle of construction. Yeah. And we literally have a, a, a conversation with customers that we don't do cleanup. It's literally once you get involved with those projects, you have no idea what's going to happen with depositions down the road. You're going to be dragged into a professional opinion. And why would you want to give your professional opinion against your peer if the if somebody downstream made the wrong decisions, knowingly made the wrong You know, again, we said ignorant, very poor defensible position. And you can't say you didn't see it on the Internet. We're everywhere these days, right? And not use that as the, the context for why this project is so bad, why the drawings are so bad, why the contractor was digging and didn't know that there was a surprise there. The only reason they have surprise discoveries is because nobody has looked. If you don't look, it will be a surprise. If you did look, there won't be a surprise. It, it's not rocket scientists. This is pretty, you know, stock standard survey and mapping from the 1800s. Yeah, pretty basic stuff. Uh, Michael, uh, let's. Uh, we we like ending these uh, these episodes with two questions. So, first question: One thing that you would say to all stakeholders, all stakeholders uh, throughout the project lifecycle uh, about subsurface utilities and how they can tackle that challenge. Well, I think for the first, they need to educate everybody on the project. So. The asset owner or the project owner needs to be aware of the standards uh, and the guidelines and the state laws and the implications of what's going on for map. I think the designer needs to have that real hardcore conversation about do we have money for investigations because they do geotech investigations. They'll do environmental investigation. Why the hell do you miss and forsake the utility investigation? Makes no sense. But if you're going to do it, you have to adopt the standards. Uh, and at least put a note on the drawings that there is no investigation. Don't lie to the contractor. Said that every effort was made. No, there's no effort made. You said, I've made no effort to collect underground assets. I've made no attempt to put all the information on there. And I'm transferring the risk to you as the contractor. So at least they know they can make appropriate uh, changes in their program when they break ground to protect you. So that's the biggest phase right there. Uh, and we would love state law change that, you know, Colorado told us uh, when I was on a program last year, the DOT gentleman told me 
that the reason it got state law in, in Colorado was because the contractor pushed hard enough to say, this is not right, that it's all the risk is being put on us and the responsibility to find all utilities. So we think that's a really message for the other states, that they really have to see that contractors want this much as engineers and asset owners. Interesting. Last question. Who do you think we should have our next? Who's going to be our next guest? That's a good one. Uh, let me get back to you on that. So, okay, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow absolutely, up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Michael, this, is, uh, this has been a pleasure. Uh, very informative. Lots of amazing insights uh, for all our listeners to take note of and to implement in their day to day around the challenge of subsurface utilities. So I appreciate you joining us. Absolutely. Today. Thank you for inviting me, David. Thank you.